Right, good evening, everyone. How we doing? Cool. You got a Bible with you? Go ahead and grab that. We're going to be at Ephesians chapter 4. Once again, Ephesians chapter 4 this evening in your scriptures. So I told you on the first night uh, that when I was just about your age, a little bit younger, uh, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And that decision to follow Jesus changed my whole life. Here's how it happened. Uh, I grew up in a church home like a lot of you may have grown up in. Uh, And my church home was a little different than a lot of people's church homes. I I grew up in a home where my mom and dad, actually this summer, will celebrate 40 years of marriage. It's beautiful and it's amazing, the marriage they've had. And yet, here's the odd thing about their marriage. For almost 40 years, they have both followed Jesus, but they each go to different churches. So my dad is like this Irish Catholic man who goes to Catholic church every single Sunday, and that's where he goes. And my mom is like this Dutch Presbyterian lady who goes to Presbyterian church every single Sunday, and that's where she goes. And so growing up, the question was never, will you go to church? The question was always, which church will you go to? And so we had a choice each and every Sunday morning. Which church do you want to go to this morning? And so the decision for me as a young man really came down to the most important question on Sundays, and that question would be, what time are my beloved San Francisco 49ers playing? That was the question, right? That was it. And so if they had an earlier kickoff, I would go to my dad's church because that got me home in time to see the game. But if they had a later kickoff where we're playing Monday night, then I'd go to my mom's church. And that's how I navigated this decision for the first few years of my life. And then later on, I get into middle school, and my mom's church rolls out this youth group, and there's ping pong, to- ping pong tables and donuts and all those cool things. And I decided as a sixth grader that I myself was a Presbyterian for that exact reason. So again, the question for me growing up was not, will you go to church? It's, which church will you go to? And so all growing up, it was like, okay, I'm going to go to church, but which church is it going to be? But then, I'm going through middle school, and l- listen, I'm one of those guys that, like, growing up... Every time they did a gospel invitation or who wants to love Jesus, I'm like, I I do, right? And like my hand was up all the time. And listen, I don't know, I think God honors that. Like I think in some beautiful way, there are some ways God honors that. And yet, it was the summer before my eighth grade year. I was at a summer camp. And I'm away with all my friends and the preacher gets up and the preacher gives this invitation. I'll never forget he's preaching out of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says that that we would not be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would give over our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And he just said really clearly to this room, is there anyone here today who wants that to be true of your life? It's not true of your life now, but is there anyone today who wants to receive Jesus and live the kind of life where you give your life over to Jesus? He saves you, he rescues you, and it changes everything. And for some reason, that night, I said, that's me. Like, that's me. Uh, Again, I grew up in church, I knew all the church things, but for me, all growing up, the question was, will I go to church? And it felt like for the first time in my life that evening, a different question was put before me. It was not, will I go to church? It is, what will I do with Jesus? And that's the question that I wanna put before every single one of you tonight. A simple question but a life-changing question. What will you do with Jesus? See, tonight, that invitation I received when I was 12 years old, I'm gonna give that same invitation to some of you. I just wanna state it as clearly as I can before I even begin this sermon, that tonight, I'm going to invite some of you to become followers of Jesus for the first time in your life. Tonight, I'm gonna invite some of you to receive Jesus, receive his mercy and his forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins tonight. I'm going to invite some of you to be saved. 
Uh, I want to show you how that happens and what that means. Again, out of Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, I want you to see this here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. Remember earlier today, we were looking at verses 18 and 19, where it talked about the sinful patterns of the world. And it talked about that we think wrong and we feel wrong and ultimately we do wrong. And then in verse 20, it says this. It says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught about him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Uh, like in other words, there's the way the rest of the world lives. There's the sinful pattern where they think wrong, they feel wrong, they do wrong. But he goes, no, 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 that's not who you are. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are someone who is committed to following after Jesus as your master, that's not the way you live. That's not what it's true about Christ and what's taught in him according to the truth that's in Jesus. So, so here's what Paul is certain of. Paul is certain that if you're going to follow Jesus, there is this truth about him you need to know. There is this way that Christ has. There are these truths that are in Jesus, and once you understand and believe those truths, it changes everything about your life. So if you're writing notes tonight, you can write this down, that following Jesus starts with belief and leads to behavior. It starts with belief, and it leads to behavior. Like the point is that you come to believe in who Jesus is and what he says about himself and what he says about you. And then from that belief, it changes your behavior. Because listen, here's what you need to know. If you try to have behavior change in your life without belief, it's powerless. If you try to have behavior change in your life without actually believing it's true, it's powerless. It would be like if you kicked off this new year and you're like, you know what, I'm going to start eating healthier. I'm going to do more vegetables and less candy, more good foods and less bad foods, and I'm going to get into this. I'm going to eat healthier. The, the real truth is this, that that is a powerless New Year's resolution unless you actually believe that what is going to happen in your body is better for you if you eat healthier. When we actually believe something, it produces behavior change in our life. But when we don't actually believe it, it becomes powerless. And here's what I want you to know. There is a powerlessness to you pretending to make your life better, saying, I got to go home and clean up my act and act better and behave better and sin less if you don't actually believe in the Jesus of the Bible. See, listen, I want you to note so clearly in that the behavior change without belief is powerless. But the opposite is also true. The belief without behavior change is phony. It's phony. It's fake. It would be like if you came to me and said, you know what, Brian, uh, I get my screen time report every week from my phone, and it's a little embarrassing how often I'm on my phone. It's so many hours a day, I'm embarrassed, I'm going to try to spend less time on my phone. But then you actually don't go change your phone habits at all. And you're still on the phone as many hours as you were before. Your screen time has not gone down, it's only gone up. I would say that that is a phony kind of belief. You claim to believe it, but the fact that it hasn't actually materialized anything in your life says that you don't actually believe this is true. Do you know that there are millions, maybe even tens of millions of Christians who claim to be followers of Jesus, who say that Jesus is the Lord of their life, and yet they live just the same as everyone else in the world? They claim to believe all the things of Christianity, and yet they don't actually live as if it's true. And here's what I want you to know. That kind of belief is powerless, and it's phony. And that's not what I'm calling anyone to tonight. See, I want you to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. I want you to trust him as the Savior and as the Lord of your life. And I believe the evidence that that is true in my life is when I start to behave different, when I start to act different, feel different, see the world different. That's what Paul has in mind here. Again, he says, however, this is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught about him in accordance to the truth that is in Jesus. 
It goes on this way in verse 22. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, to put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Now, again, if you're taking notes in your Bible and just tracking along, can you just underline some things here? It says in verse 22, put off your old self. In verse 23, it says to be made new. In verse 24, it says you put on the new self. And it says for the sake of righteousness and holiness. And then here's the most stunning part of this whole thing, in case you missed it. It says that you were created, like in Christ, to be like God. Like this is a stunning thing that Paul is saying. Here's what I don't want you to miss. Paul is saying things like, you got to die to your old self, put on your new self. You're going to be filled with holiness and with righteousness. You are going to be just like God. You are going to be created to be like God. Here's what I want you to know. This is not the talk of moral improvement. This is not the thing people think Christianity is. Where they think Christianity is you just behaving better and acting better and trying to be a good person in this world. Sometimes people tell me, yeah, I follow Jesus. I try to be a good person. I try to help the poor. I try to do nice things for people. All of that is lovely. It's just not what following Jesus is. Following Jesus is not a moral improvement plan. What Paul is describing here of old self, new self, that you're going to be created like God. This is miracle language. This is that God is going to do something so profound in your life that there is no explanation other than the fact that you encountered the God of the universe. And if you are to look at your life and go, there is not actually anything different about me. There is no fruit of the Spirit, nothing different about me, nothing about my life that says I've encountered God. The scriptures say you need to examine yourself to see whether you are truly in the faith. It'd be like this. So imagine that tomorrow morning, uh, we, we, I see you at breakfast, and I say, how are you doing this morning? And you're like, it has been a crazy morning. And I'm like, tell me about your crazy morning. And you're like, you know what I was doing? I was walking from the dormitory down to breakfast this morning, and as I was walking down to breakfast, there was this snow plow, and it was plowing the road for this huge big rig that was coming through with oil. Massive truck. Brian, it was incredible. I was watching it coming through. I was standing right in the middle of the road, and both the snow plow and the big rig just ran me flat over. And it was awesome. And here I am. And I'm looking at you, and you look like you're put together. You don't look like you've just been run over by a big rig. And I'm looking at you, and I'm just suspicious that this didn't actually happen, right? Because if you were to get run over by a big rig, if you were to actually get plowed over and encountered by something that big, I would not look at you and be like, yeah, you look just like everyone else. I would look at you and be like, something crazy happened to you. And I don't know what it is, but something happened. And here's what you need to know. If you have truly encountered the God of the universe, your life is going to look different. I should be able to look at your life and see something is different about that person. They have encountered something so big, so powerful, so overwhelming, that the only explanation is that they have encountered the God of the universe. This is what we're called toward. You are not called to leave camp and just brush up your life a little bit. You are not called to leave camp and swear a little less and try to look at porn a little less and try to be a little less like everyone else. This is not a moral improvement plan. This is a total reorientation of your being. This is something we should look at you and say, this person had an encounter with God. This person had an encounter with Jesus. And tonight, I want to talk to you about what it means for you to have that encounter with Jesus that changes your whole life, that changes everything about you.
that changes the way you act and the way you think and the way you feel, the way you relate to others, the way you see this world and the way you see eternity. To do that, I want to invite you in the book of Ephesians to go back two chapters. So if you've got your Bible, go from Ephesians 4, go back two chapters to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1, and I want you to see how you encounter this Jesus, how you encounter this God who changes everything about you. It says in verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So tonight I'm here to proclaim to you the good news of Jesus. But in order for you to understand the good news of Jesus, you need to be abundantly clear about the bad news of your sin. The bad news of your sin is that it is not a neutral thing in this universe. Uh, like I need you to understand clearly, a young man or woman who thinks you don't need God, you've got this thing on your own, here's what I want you to know that the Bible says about you. If you reject God and say, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction, the scriptures say about you in verse 4 that you are deserving of wrath. And what is that wrath? God's wrath is his righteous punishment for your rebellion against him. Right, right. All human beings, here's what we've done. We looked at the God of the universe who created us, and we said, forget you, God. I'm going my own direction. I don't know you. We have rebelled and committed treason against the high king of the universe. And in every society there has ever been on the face of the earth in the history of human civilization, the punishment for treason is the same thing. The punishment for treason is death. And when it comes to a holy God, an eternally great God, the punishment for our treason, the punishment for our sin is death and is eternal death. The punishment for our sin, the wrath of God against our sin is described in the scriptures with the word hell. It's described in the scriptures with the word hell. Now now here's what hell is. Hell is punishment eternally for our sins and separation from God for all of eternity. Hell is not a joke. Hell is not a game. Hell is not something I made up just to scare you or frighten you. Hell is something that is consistently taught in the scriptures from Jesus himself all through the New Testament. There is a clear picture that the wrath of God is upon you for your sin. That if you have not trusted Jesus and called out for his mercy and forgiveness and pardon, the wrath of God sits upon you. And that what you are deserving of, it says the wages of sin is death, and that you would be judged and separated from God for eternity in a place called hell. Uh, Again, hell is what the scriptures teach. And it's not like I just get up here and like I'm excited to do it. And yet here's what I know. I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't talk about hell. It's like this. I got that two-year-old son I talk about who like sometimes is charming and amazing and sometimes is tearing the whole world to pieces. And sometimes what he does in his little two-year-old self is he wants to do things that you and I both know are dangerous. He wants to run into the street to grab a ball. He wants to grab a sharp knife off the counter. We're cooking at the stove, and he wants to put his hand onto the hot stove. And wouldn't you agree that I would be the worst kind of father in the world if my son put his hand on a hot stove? He's reaching up, and I just went, listen, I don't want to sound judgmental or anything, so knock yourself out. I don't want to sound mean or harsh, or I don't want to scare you or anything, so go ahead and run into the street. See what happens, Noah. I would be the worst father in the universe if I did that, and I would be the worst pastor ever if I did not stand here and tell you that if you do not repent of your sin 
and trust in Jesus, if you continue to run away from God and turn your back on him, for all of eternity, he will let you run that direction. And the word the Bible has for that direction is hell. That now was a couple years ago. I was preaching my church, and uh, I was preaching on this very subject. I talked about hell. And after the service, I had this young man come up to me. He was clearly unhappy. And I knew he was unhappy because he got up in my face and he put his finger on my chest. And he started talking to me in a really harsh tone. He said, are you telling me? Are you telling me that I'm going to hell just because I don't believe in your Jesus? Are you telling me? I'm a good person. I love my family. I love my culture. I love my society. I help people out. I'm a good guy. And you're telling me, Brian, that I'm going to hell. Now, how did I respond in that moment? I responded with two responses, and it's the same two responses I want you to respond with next time someone gets in your face about this. The first is this. He said, are you telling me? I said, I want to be clear. I'm not telling you anything. Jesus is. I'm not telling you what the scriptures say about hell. Jesus is talking about hell. Paul is talking about hell. Paul is talking about God's wrath. This is a Bible thing. This is a God thing. This isn't some opinion I have or opinion you have. What we do is we say, this is a God thing, so you take it up with him. Like, I'm not here tonight telling you my thoughts or feelings or opinions. I'm here tonight showing you what the scriptures say, and you go wrestle with it. So that's the first response. But then here's the second response, and I think it's far more important. See, most people think that that heaven is really just a way to get away from hell. It's like hell's the bad place, and then heaven's the good place you go, and everyone would rather go to heaven. But I need you to know that is a fundamental misunderstanding of heaven. Heaven is about one thing. The one thing heaven is about is the presence and the goodness and the glory of God. And if I could be more specific, heaven is about rejoicing in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And so here's the question I asked the young man. If heaven is all about being with Jesus and you want nothing to do with him, why would you want to go spend an eternity there where it's all about him? That's the question we have to ask. See, tonight, I'm not calling you to respond to Jesus just to get out of hell. I'm calling you to respond to Jesus because you can spend an eternity with him, and he is the one who loves you and adores you and calls you into his joy. Uh, Again, when I speak about the wrath of God that Paul describes here, hell is not a joke. Hell is real. Hell is separation from God and judgment for sin. It is eternal. But here's the best news I could possibly tell you tonight. Hell is not somewhere anyone has to go. Hell is not somewhere anyone has to go. I want you to see the very next words of Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, but, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. Here's the good news of the gospel. You and I are deserving of judgment and wrath and hell, and yet because of God's great mercy, we are saved and we are rescued through Jesus. Because of God's great mercy. Like, let me just speak this over anyone who doesn't quite understand this about our God. Our God's heart toward you is filled with compassion and grace and mercy. He looks to you filled not with contempt and anger, but filled with mercy for you. Filled with compassion for you. Filled with love for you. It's like this. Throughout the week, I've been talking about my kids. uh, And I'll remind you, I got the 10-month-old girl, Hope. I'll show you a little photo of her here. Um, So here's Hope. And yeah, this was her at Christmas. And I show you this to show, like, how little she is. Like, she's tiny, right? And yet, at at 10 or 11 months here, almost 11, um, she's starting to figure out the basic human skill of walking. And so here's what I do. We, We try to prop her up. Like, we'll stand her up. And then my wife will put her here, 
And then I'll stand over here, like a few steps away, and I'll go, walk to daddy. Now, she has no idea what that means, but she's just trying her best. And so I go, walk to daddy, walk to daddy. And then my wife lets go of her, and she stands there. And what she's mastered right now is the technique of, like, wobbling a little but standing there. And then we're like, walk to daddy. And then she puts one foot out. And here's the saddest thing about babies. If you fall down even on the ice this week, you have, like, natural reactions where your hands go out and you catch yourself. Not so with little babies. They just fall down and they're just like, boom, like right into the ground. It's on carpet, chill out. But like, that's the deal. So she gets up there. I'm over here going, walk to daddy, walk to daddy. She's over here like, boom, right into the ground. Now, we have done this over and over and over and over again. And can I tell you something? There has never been one moment Not a single moment that my daughter has stood there and taken zero steps, fallen on her face in an attempt to walk toward me. There has not been one time that I have looked at my 10-month-old daughter and gone, you pathetic little baby. Do better. You're just walking to me. I'm like three steps away. Do better. There has not been one moment I've done that. Why? Because she's my kid and I love her. And I'm not filled with contempt and anger and rage toward her. I am filled with compassion and mercy and grace and love. And yet some of you have convinced yourself that your father in heaven looks at you filled with anger and disgust and contempt. Some of you stumble toward your father as you're trying to walk and you stumble and you fall in your sin and you think the God of the universe is filled with rage toward you. You think the God of the universe is filled with contempt. And yet the God of the universe is like a good father who is filled with compassion, who is rich in mercy, who is filled with love towards you. And as you stumble, however imperfectly, toward the father, he sees that and receives that, and he delights in that. Can I just speak six words over someone who needs to hear this tonight? Six words. God is not disgusted with you. He is not disgusted with you. I know some of you have disqualified yourself from the love of God. You have disqualified yourself from the idea that God wants anything to do with you. But the God of the universe is not disgusted with you. Paul describes him in this way. This God, because of his great love for us, he is rich in mercy. He made us alive. It is by grace you have been saved. To the young man who's stuck in your sexual sin and feels like God can never love you because of what you've done, he's not disgusted with you. To the young lady who has a past that you're ashamed of and you feel like if anyone ever found out, you would just crumble, God is not disgusted with you. To the person in this room who's mocked or belittled Christians, who's made fun of Jesus' people, who doesn't even want anything to do with Jesus, I want you to know my God is not disgusted with you, nor is he done with you. The God of the universe is filled with compassion, he is filled with love, and he is rich in mercy. Verse 5 says, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. See, the invitation that I'm giving you tonight is not to work toward or earn toward or make yourself right with God. The invitation tonight is not like, commit to Jesus, and if you're good enough, he'll love you and he'll save you. It's much better than that. 
What happens in this invitation is that God gives you this salvation as a gift. He does 100% of the work. You do 0% of the work. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. It is a gift that God holds out to you. And all you do is receive it with joy. It's like this. So um, the, the day I got married, March 1st of 2013, um, my wife and I get married. We go to a hotel that night. The next morning we wake up and we drive down to Los Angeles International Airport uh, to get on a plane and go to our honeymoon. And, and so there's two different types of flyers in this world. There's the type of flyer who's like, we'll get there, we'll have a few minutes to spare and then get onto the plane. That's me. And then there's my wife who's like, we will get there 47 hours early and we will make sure we are settled in at the airport and we will be there. And so we decided to go with her way of doing that. And so we were at the airport very early and we're settled in and we've got like 100 hours till our flight. So we decided to go get a meal. And we go in to get a meal. Now, here's what you need to know that happens right after you get married. Someday, Lord willing, if you get married, um, this is what will happen. You get to use a whole new set of vocabulary for one another. It's not boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance. You get to start saying, that's my wife. I'm her husband. And so everywhere we went, I'm so obnoxious. I'd be like, excuse me, uh, we're going to get into that car. My wife and I would like to get in. Like, I'm just using that language, so obnoxious. So I go up to the restaurant, and I'm like, my wife and I would like a table. We just got married yesterday. Like, I'm just like over the top doing this. And like, my wife would like some more ketchup, please, right? Like, I'm just doing this the whole time. I'm so obnoxious. And then it gets to the point where we're like, okay, it's time to go to our gate. So we wade down the waiter, and we say, hey, listen, uh, we need our check. She comes back, she comes back again, she kind of looks confused, she comes back to us and says, okay, I just got to tell you something. Um, someone in the restaurant overheard you talking about how you just got married. I was like, yeah, I just got married. And they paid for your bill. They paid for it, all of it. Like, it's done, it's paid. And it was like the weirdest moment in my life. Because I was like, what do I do in this moment? Like, the bill is already paid for, so I'm not going to like pull out my credit card and be like, no, no, I insist, right? It's already paid for, there's nothing I can do. The bill is paid for, so what could I do in this moment? I could only do two things. I receive it and say thank you, and then I move along in gratitude. I receive it with joy, and I move along with gratitude. And I want you to know that this is the good news of the gospel, that your bill for your sin is paid, not mostly, not some of the way, but in full. This is the good news of Jesus, that on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus pays for all of your sin. And there is nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to deserve it. You receive it with joy, and you live the rest of your life in gratitude and in worship. Like this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus takes your place. Listen, Jesus gets beat up on the cross, physically, brutally, brutalized on the cross, so that you don't have to beat yourself up over your sin anymore. Jesus already took that upon his own body. You don't have to live in that anymore. Jesus hung naked and ashamed on the cross so that you don't live in the shame of your sin anymore. That was put upon Jesus. And on the cross of Jesus, he cries out these words. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Jesus gets cut off and alienated from God on the cross so that you will never have to be separated from him. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he takes your place. He is your substitute. And then the resurrection is proof that that check got cashed that it didn't bounce, that it was sufficient to pay for your salvation. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus Christ died on the sins according to the scripture. He rose on the third day according to the scripture for your sins and for your salvation. This is the gospel. This is the gift of God of eternal life, that you are deserving of sin, death, and hell. You are deserving of condemnation, and yet because of God's great mercy and compassion, he sends Jesus to die on your place 
rise from the dead, that you might come to trust in him. Verse 9 says this, that this is not by our works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing you can do to earn this. There's nothing you do to deserve this. There's nothing you do to make God love you more. There's nothing you do in this. It is entirely 100% God's effort and 0% yours. It was like a couple years ago, I was in the hot tub in the backyard at my house, and my daughter was in the hot tub with me. And the hot tub was up to here, but when she put her feet on the very, very bottom, she wasn't quite tall enough to make it. So it's this tiny little bottle, of, bottle body of water, and yet she's in it. And then what happens is the jets are going, and suddenly she slips, and she goes under the water. And I see this. Now it's a hot tub. I'm like two feet away. So I see her slip and I see the fear in her face and she goes under the water. And in that moment, I go in and I grab her and I pull her out. Now here's the truth. My daughter did nothing to save herself in that moment. In that moment, my daughter did nothing to help herself, nothing to save herself. I did 100% of the work. She did 0% of the work. And if 10 years from now, she's like, yeah, there was this moment I slipped in the hot tub and my dad helped, but I really saved myself. It would show she had no clue what was going on in that circumstance. In that moment, I put my hands down. I pulled her out of the water. I rescued my daughter in that moment, and that is exactly what God does to you. God rescues. God saves. God does the saving. You do the receiving. God does the forgiving. You do the rejoicing. This is the good news of the gospel. It is a free gift, and that is the offer. I want to give to every single one of you tonight. So here's the question we'll close with. How do you receive that free gift? How do you receive the gift of the forgiveness of your sins, that you are brought into the family of God, that you are given a home with him forevermore? How does that happen? And the answer is simple. You receive the gift of salvation when you ask for it. When you ask for it. When you call out for God to save you, he will rescue you. Let me show you one of the most powerful sentences I have ever read in my entire life. Here's the sentence, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It'll be on the screen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This shows up over and over and over again in the Bible. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the invitation for you tonight? It is this sentence, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's that first word? Say it with me. Everyone. Everyone. Does that include people who didn't grow up in church? Yes. Does that include people who grew up in church but drifted away from God and they're not sure where they stand with him? Yes. Does that include people who have sinned sexually? Yes. Does that include people who have sinned sexually at camp or brought drugs up to camp? Yes. Everyone. 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 And if somehow you've convinced yourself that you are not eligible for God's salvation, go read that word again. Everyone is included in this. It says everyone who calls who cries out to God. Listen, tonight, you don't need to know everything about God. You don't need to have all the facts and all the information. You don't have to know everything about the Bible. You can be filled with questions. You can have all sorts of doubts. The question is not, do you know everything there is to know about God? The question is, are you willing to call out to him for help? Are you willing to say, God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Rescue me tonight. That's the type of person God saves do you know that there's only one type of person God won't save? The only type of person God won't save is the person who doesn't think they need saving. The person who doesn't think God would actually rescue them. The person who doesn't actually ask. The people who get saved aren't the special ones, the good ones, the best ones. They're the people who call out to God that he would rescue them and save them. It says everyone, everyone, everyone who calls. And then it says on the name of the Lord. 
on the name of the Lord Jesus. But what we talked about earlier this week, earlier this week when we talked about this word Lord is the Greek word kurios. And oftentimes we see Lord and we think it means God and that's true, but also this word kurios actually means something. This word kurios means master. It means the one who's in charge. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we mean that Jesus is in charge. We mean that he is the master. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we mean that he is the king. Meaning that when you call on the name of the Lord to be saved, it's not saying, God, just go ahead and rescue me, but I'm going to keep living the way I want to. If you call upon the name of the Lord tonight, you are calling upon the name of your new master. He's in charge. You follow him for the rest of your life. He becomes the king of your life because he already is. Uh, like sometimes I've heard people say, and I, I don't want to pick on this, but I've heard people say, tonight I'm going to call you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And, and again, I get what they're saying, and so I'm not trying to pick on it. But I want to be abundantly clear tonight. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. He already is king. He already is the Lord. He already is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And all you're doing tonight when you call on your name is you are confessing that and aligning your life to that reality. Because he rescues and saves, he is Lord and King, and you are calling on the name of the Lord, the King, the Kurios, the Master. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And then it says these words, these three words. Not might be saved, not could be saved, not will be saved if you do a bunch of good things after this and try not to sin. It says that you will be saved. It's a guarantee. You can take it to the bank. You will be saved. You will be rescued. Tonight in this chapel, your sins will be forgiven. You will be brought into the family of God. You will be justified before the Lord God. You will be reconciled to him. Your sins will be dealt with and you will be made part of his family now and forevermore. This is the invitation for all of us tonight. That everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this is how I want to invite you tonight. Um, I want to invite some of you to call right now on the name of the Lord. Some of you grew up in church and you're, you're a church kid. You've always been a church kid. And you've always said you're a church kid. But you know what? You've never actually dealt with the question I dealt with in eighth grade. It wasn't the question of church. It was the question of what am I going to do with Jesus? Tonight's your night. Like tonight, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've been a church kid, but you've never been a Jesus person, and he's king. Tonight, I want to invite you. Some of you are the last person anyone would ever think would know Jesus, and yet there's this thing inside your heart right now that says, that's me. I want that. I don't know everything. I don't understand everything about God, but I want that. I want that forgiveness. I want to be known by him. I want to walk with him. I want him to love me, and I want me to love him. Tonight, I'm going to invite you to call on the name of the Lord all across this room. The invitation remains the same, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So right now, wherever you're at right now, can I invite you to close your eyes, bow your head? The simple reason that we do this, all across this room, close your eyes, bow your head. The simple reason we do this is this. Um, the scriptures say it is appointed for every single person to die once and then to stand in judgment. And on that day of judgment, I need you to know the person sitting to your left won't be with you. The person sitting to your right won't be with you. Your youth pastor won't be with you. Your mom won't be with you. Like on that day, the only person who will answer for your life and what you did with Jesus is you. So we close our eyes and bow our heads to give ourselves space to really consider the depth of who Jesus is and what we are going to do with him. Right now, I want to offer you a prayer to pray, a prayer for which you can call on the name of the Lord. This is not some formula. This is not something I've come up with that you have to say it exactly this way. 
But I want to invite you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, to pray this prayer with me right now. To cry out to God in the quietness of your heart, just right in the silence of your mind and heart. To say, God, I believe you created me. I believe you love me. Say, God, I confess that I have sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. I have turned my back on you. But God, I believe you sent Jesus to die in my place. So God, I ask that you would forgive my sins, make me your child, and give me a home with you forevermore. Tonight, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Father in heaven, tonight I call upon the name of the Lord and ask that you would rescue and that you would save. With every eye closed and head bowed, here's my question. If tonight, if tonight you prayed that prayer, if tonight you called upon the name of the Lord for the first time, if tonight's the night you're saying, it's that's it, Tonight, I'm calling on the name of Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want to be rescued. If you prayed that prayer with me, on three, I just want to ask you to open your eyes and look straight at me. One, two, three. All across this room, look straight at me. If tonight's you, tonight, you prayed that prayer, just look straight at me right now. Keep your eyes open. Now, to those of you looking at me right now, I want to make sure no one's being deceived. I want to make sure we're abundantly clear. Tonight, if you're looking at me, are you confessing that Jesus Christ is the resurrected king of the universe and you are confessing that he is now the Lord and the king and the master of your life. If so, just nod your head yes. If not, you can close your eyes. I don't want to trick anyone. I don't want to deceive anyone. Are you also confessing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, believing that he died for your sins and rose from the dead for your salvation, that you might be fully forgiven in Jesus? If so, nod your head yes. And if not, you can close your eyes. Again, I don't want to convince anyone of anything. And if that's you tonight, here's the amazing promise that's on the screen right now. It doesn't say everyone who calls in the name of the Lord someday might be saved. It says that you will be in this exact moment. Like in this moment, the God of the universe reaches down his hand and he rescues you. He brings you in his family. You are a child of God. You are forgiven and free and loved and eternally with him. That's the promise of the scripture that you are receiving tonight. And this is too good of a moment. And too good of a promise for you to experience on your own. And so tonight, I'm standing before you telling you, I have called on the name of the Lord Jesus and trust in him with my salvation and my life. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite those of you who are looking at me right now to stand to your feet, that you might declare the same thing. You don't have to say anything. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want you to stand in this moment, to, to believe and proclaim through your standing that tonight's the night you called on the name of of the Lord. So if tonight's your night, you're saying tonight I'm putting my trust in Jesus for the first time. On three, would you stand to your feet with me? One, two, three. Stand with me right now. Amazing. For everyone else, can we look around this room and rejoice in the fact that our God saves, that our God rescues us, that our God moves in power, that our God is good? Stay standing, stay standing. For those of you standing tonight, if anyone needs to stand still, you can stand right now, right now in this place. Now listen, for those of you standing, I want you to know that you are part of the family of God. 
You are part of his church that he is building now and in every generation. He welcomes you in, he forgives your sins, and he rejoices with you. And the scriptures say that there is more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who repents than for 99 who do not need to repent. In other words, I believe there is a celebration going on in heaven because of what you have done in this place tonight. So can we echo that celebration and celebrate what God is doing in this place? Now for everyone else here, would you stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are putting their trust in Jesus and calling on his name tonight. We're going to close tonight with one final song. And what we're gonna declare in this place is that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the one we trust. Jesus Christ is the one who saves. Jesus Christ is the one who rescues. Jesus Christ is the one who we see. Jesus Christ is the one who we savor. Jesus Christ is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth of the matter is that Jesus is the one who rescues. It's all about him. It's always about him. He is our cornerstone. I invite you to sing that tonight as we believe that our God saves. Amen?